I've been looking forward to interviewing Brett Feinstein uh, for a while now, and I, I only asked him uh, to to be on the podcast a, a week or two ago. And I don't know why I waited that long because uh, he, he, it's always interesting when when I've had the opportunity to sit in person and and uh, chat with Brett. Uh, conversations go all over the place, and um, he's a real interesting guy to interact with on Facebook too. Maybe we'll talk to him a little bit about that. Um, a very unique individual, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about what he does for a living. But first, I, I just want to welcome him and uh, Brett. How you doing today? And and welcome to Branding Blog. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm uh, looking forward to chatting. Now you can in... start with the Facebook stuff if you want. <laughs> you're in uh, you're in Richmond, right? Richmond, Virginia. Richmond. And you're downtown in... Richmond, Virginia. And and you're a, a, a political consultant, marketing consultant. What? How how would you describe that? Uh... I'm a the way I always describe it is I'm a a partner in a political advertising in a, in a political. Well, we're an ad agency, but we predominantly focus on political advertising, either for candidates or organizations or associations and issue groups. Um, we do a small amount of sort of traditional product service advertising, but it's not our focus. Okay. And I always find it interesting that uh, when uh, our, our mutual friend Roy Williams uh, introduces you or talks about you, I've, I've heard the story about how you got involved in politics in, in college. Can you tell us that? This was always a great I, story. I always want to see, just friends. make sure that it, it, it uh, jives with the one I've heard before, because I don't know that I've ever heard you tell it. Well, and, you know, and Roy tends to embellish uh, sometimes. but um, I think he, he know, likes to say he a, tells the truth in a more powerful way. Yeah, <laughs> often in a way I don't even recognize. Um, this was always a great uh, story I used to tell when I was teaching up at the Graduate School of Political Management up at George Washington University. And I, I'd walk into class, and inevitably, you know, at the end of the class, we would, because all of the instructors are working professionals for the most part in that program, you know, some kid would raise hand and say, how did you get in the business? And this is, you know, and, and most people would talk about, you know, their great, deep idealism and uh, their worship for, you know, their favorite politician and, or their, their passion for advocacy. And I said, my, my, my road here is a little different. When I got to college, I didn't know what I wanted to do other than drink and party. Mm -hmm. So after two years of drinking and partying, uh, the school uh, recommended that I take a year off to think about why I was actually supposed to be there. Um, Coming back, I realized that the, the key to maintaining my, uh, my scholastic career and doing the drinking and partying that I intended to do was to find a major that didn't really have um, a lot of uh, uh, papers and due dates. That, became, that was theater. Okay. Uh, For me, that so was journalism. Same, same reasons. Yeah. See, but you actually had to sit at a computer and write stuff. I, I didn't like <laughs> to do that. We didn't see, have computers see, back it, then. <laughs> but in theater, see, see, theater was great because you could take these theater, like introduction to acting, and you, you, they'd be like, okay, we want you to lay on the floor and imagine an act like you're breathing in the color blue. <laughs> and you'd be like, oh, I feel the blue, whatever. How about now do yellow? Oh, I am so, you know, insanity. I mean, I'm getting credit for lying on the floor um, and breathing. You know, how, how bad could this be? I, I did take one class in government. I think I dropped it like in the second uh, you know, session of it because uh, it seemed like it was going to be an awful lot of work. Uh, anyway, make a long story short, I'm coming back from a rehearsal one night. Oh, and I, and I should add, 
I ended up uh, focusing on directing rather than acting or mm-hmm. uh, technical. Uh, coming back to my dorm one night from a uh, a rehearsal, there was a they had this cork board, you know, in the entrance hallway, and that people would put up posters for shows or volunteer activities, whatever. And there was one saying, uh, "Volunteer phone callers needed free pizza and beer." And I said, uh, "That's great. I can talk on the phone." <laughs> so he wants to give me free pizza and beer, and I was kind of a broke kid. I mean, I was there on uh, on financial aid, and uh, so I, without knowing who it was, went down and uh, signed up. And it was the local Republican Party. I, I, I probably, you know, probably leaned that way anyway, but but certainly wasn't terribly plugged in or passionate about it. But I was there every night making calls, and they thought I was like the greatest volunteer they'd ever seen. And I was just drinking and eating them out of house and home. <laughs> um, but you know, like so many things in life, it, you know, showing up is like 90% of the game, right? So, you know, they saw me there. They think I'm this hardcore activist volunteer who's just committed to the cause. So the next thing they say is, we're holding a big fundraising dinner. And would you help us by working the door or something like that? I don't remember exactly what it was. And I you know, my first question was, you know, is there free drinks? <laughs> and, you know, they sort of said, no, but you get a free dinner. And I'm thinking, well, it's got to be better than what we, they served in the dining halls back then. And so I went and did that. And so you start meeting people and people start seeing you over and over again. And by the time I graduated college, I knew a couple of things about life. One was that to make it in, in theater required a lot of menial effort in terms of waiting tables, et cetera, that I just didn't have the passion to do. Mm-hmm. And, and nor did I have, you know, the, uh, the physical skill to do. All that dues paying. Yes, the dues pay. I wasn't really into that. And in and, and the career that I was most interested in, I realized I could not pursue. Um, my original passion was to become a professional chef. Okay. Um, but I couldn't do that. I was all lined up to go to Culinary Institute after college uh, because the guy who ran the food service for the college was a CIA grad. He had it all worked out. Um, but I found... A, you know, working in the kitchen, which is how I part, how I paid my way through school, cooking, cooking some uh, uh, banquet meals and also cooking for the students. Um, the smell of onions makes me literally want to vomit. I, it's, I start heaving. Well, you can't work professionally in the kitchen if you can't, no, you know, as that, a career, if you can't just... deal with onions. So, you know, ha- having the sort of violent physical reaction to onions was, was sort of a deal killer. So, you know, I, I've graduated college with my, with my whopping 2.06. Um, and I need to get a job. And, you know, essentially I've had a college career that, you know, qualifies me as either a beer taster or jerking, or jerking Slurpees at 7-Eleven. And uh, so I didn't know what I was going to do. And this guy I'd met through the political stuff was running for state Senate and he needed a manager. And I didn't know what that meant, but I knew it was a job. And so I took it. And, you know, then after that campaign, I needed another job and another job. And I stayed in the business. And that that's, that's typical of the business, isn't it? I mean, it, it's it's never going to be the same job for very long because uh, all the positions change. The Campa- particularly early on. I mean, campaigns end, you know, yeah. um, and you know, these are, you know, every campaign is going out of business on a certain date. And so, you know, obviously some of your candidates win and they'll take some of the campaign staffers with them as staff as part of their official staff, depending on the level of office and, and what the budgets are. Um, but you know, most, you know, Many people who start out in campaign politics and who want to, particularly if they want to make a career in campaign politics, um, will go campaign to campaign. And, and for a number of years, um, everything, you know, everything I needed to have with me on a campaign and, you know, 
to move anywhere in the country could fit in a Nissan Sentra. <laughs> Um, you know, you know, so I slept on an air mattress and so I could, I could go anywhere, anytime without, you know, much havoc and, uh, and the real hardcore campaign kids, uh, still do that. But you know, most, most people do a campaign, not because they want to stay in campaign politics, um, but because they either want to become lobbyists or they want to make connections or they want to go work in government. I mean, you have some that think they want to stay in campaign politics, but the burnout rate is very high too. Only about 5%, according to the Pew Foundation in the survey, uh, who enter campaign politics at 21 are still doing it at 30. Well, just, just that nomadic lifestyle is, is, is probably the reason. You, you can only take that for so long. Well, I mean, it, 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 it's hard to have a family. There's never any benefits in this game. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, 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 you, if you want health insurance, um, you better get into government or something else because it's the rare campaign, particularly when I was coming through the process, that, you know, had any sort of health benefits now, be, particularly on the Democratic side because of the push by the Democrats for, you know, more, more government involvement in health care. It's seen as appropriate that they give their staffs health care because they want to mandate health care for others. Um, Republicans tend to look at this much more as an um, independent contractor model. Okay. And, and so, yeah, so they'll, I, I can see that. Um, I, I just, just to hear them talk about, uh, uh, you know, healthcare for everyone. It, 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 it's always mind blowing when, when you think about the benefits that you get, if you can get elected. Sure. You know, I mean, benefits there's, are fabulous. There's, there's nobody that's got better healthcare coverage than, uh, than Congress in particular. Uh, oh yeah. Oh, it's great. It's a great deal. But their staffers but it, don't uh, get it, right? Is that what you're saying? I think the staffers – no. The staffers, because they're government employees, get government care. But if you're, on the, if you're working the campaign side ah, okay. where you're getting paid out campaign funds, it's, it's very rare that you'll see a, uh, a, a campaign uh, being able to offer benefits. I mean, first of all, the benefits are expensive, particularly short-term durational benefits. Um, and you know, every dollar you're spending on benefits is a dollar that doesn't go into communicating. Sure. Uh, you know, there's there's the the psychology of it too is interesting because I'm I'm sure a candidate looks at that as, um, it, it's yeah it's it's dollars that you can't spend communicating, but it's also they they probably look at it a little bit more like their money as opposed to other people's money. Um, depend more so if they're self funding if they're writing their own checks to the campaign. Sure. Um, they tend to be a little bit more hands off when it's 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 donations, but you know a a lot you know a lot of how a candidate handles money in the campaign often reflects how they handle money you know, once they are elected in terms of tax dollars and, and some can be very, you know, want, want to pinch every penny and others, you know, don't look at it as their money, particularly if it wasn't theirs to begin with yeah. and, and, and tend to be more frivolous with it. What's interesting about campaigns, you know, obviously a lot of, a lot of the people that you talk to on these podcasts um, are dealing with businesses that advertise mm-hmm. and businesses always, you know, to the extent that I've dealt with them always seem to want to limit to the extent that they can their, um, uh, the, you know, how do I reduce my advertising overhead for the same dollar, you know, or, you know, reduce my advertising dollars for the same bang. I mean, whereas yeah. in campaigns, it's how can I reduce all my overhead so I can do more advertising? <laughs> exactly. It's <laughs> a little bit flipped on its head. It's, yeah. It's the bizarre world of advertising. Well, and, and as you said earlier, uh, it, there's always an end point for a campaign. Absolutely. Right. You, you know, that, that on election day, we're, we're done, we're done spending money. Um, we may not be done raising money for a few weeks, but, (laughs) 
uh, we're, we're certainly done spending it. There's a, there's a goal line that once you cross it, you, you know, that, that campaign is done. And, and in business, uh, you know, your, your marketing calendar should be really as long as the calendar for how long you want to stay in business. You, you, you need a much longer right. time horizon and, and that, uh, that thought process that goes into it. So, I'm I'm interested in in your take on that. Uh, being uh, so focused on on campaign advertising and messaging, um, what similarities are there? What could a long term advertiser learn from from watching how uh, how the political game is played in in terms of the communication and the advertising? It's probably easier to answer by talking about some of the differences first of all. Okay. Um, uh, you know, good out. You know, good business advertising is probably is a fifty-two week process. Um, obviously, it ramps up at certain times of the year for certain businesses versus others. But you know, you have you have a fifty-two week strategy, um, because I suppose in, you know in many cases when a consumer is going to need your product or service will vary from consumer to consumer over the course of a, over the course of a year. Well, and, and it, it's going to vary by product category too. And that's, that's Absolutely. one of the things that, that people seldom really look at, but it's so important is that, is that if, if you're, if you're selling something that people need to buy every day or every week, your strategy is completely different than if you're selling something that they may buy once in a lifetime or even every five or 10 years, like a car. Mm-hmm. It, it's just gotta be different. Uh, Absolutely, but if you think of it the same way, that that's your first big mistake. But you know, when you look at politics in its most basic sense, and that there are nuances to this, which we can get into if you want. But in, in the most rudimentary form, you have your, your you know the business in terms of when your buyers can make their purchase is a one day window. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's, there's, there's some nuances to this if you have, you're in an early voting state with absentee balloting. But let's just keep this simple for a second just talk about in terms of election day um so you know in many cases you know farther out advertising you want to advertise backwards from the one day that you're open and that becomes the the factor how 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 far back can i afford to go while maintaining the level of intensity i need to burn through the number of messages i need to burn through mm-hmm. um uh, versus how do i maintain this over a ongoing period of time so when we when we build schedules and communications programs we build backwards from election day um and we figure out you know how many messages do we need to to, to burn in to move 50 plus one voters 50 percent plus one voters over to our side um how many you know how many messages do we need to burn in how many spots will that take what will that cost does the campaign you know does the campaign budget hold it and then we build back from there mm-hmm. so you'll see obviously in your largest campaign some of them are now starting pre-labor day in small states with cheap media markets like the Dakotas, you're seeing statewide top ticket candidates, governors, U.S. senators starting advertising a year out now, which was you know unheard of. But in the larger states like here in Virginia, you'll see candidates really begin the bulk of their statewide advertising if they're running for governor, U.S. Senate, you know, a little a little before Labor Day, because you just can't sustain um, the level of intensity necessary to keep the message fresh in their heads on election day and by starting any earlier. And, and because we, the theory, the theory in, in politics is also a little different. Uh, we, I, I call it blunt force advertising. Sure. We yeah. just pound, we just pound it into your head. 
it's just simpler that way. And and very often it's it's the last hammer blow that that uh, <laughs> absolutely but that, that makes the difference. I, I, you know, I have clients <clears throat> every year. I will have a client for whatever for any of a number of reasons whom we are not the first person up on the air or in the mailbox. Mm-hmm. It might be budgetary. It might be a strategic choice. And they'll say, "Oh my God, we're not. We've got to get something. We've got to get something out there. Uh, our opponent is already doing stuff, whatever." And I will say, "It's not who goes first. It's who they hear last." Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I I want my I want to outpoint them, outmail them, whatever whatever my my metric is in terms of just sheer weight of message, never mind content. As we end the campaign, not at the beginning. We we had a guy on city council here for years in, in the little town I live in that that. Literally, if you were, if, if he was wishwashy on, on an issue, if you were the last guy to talk to him before the council meeting, he'd vote your way. There's guys in Congress like that. Yeah. As, as long as you were the <laughs> last guy. <laughs> you know, no, I, I, I know a number of members of Congress who'd fall into that category on both sides of the aisle. I, I got a, I got a, well, I, I called it, you know, the, the big uh, issue over the uh, SOPA and is it, was it PIPA or PIPA, the Protect IP Act? Yeah. Uh, was going on here the last week before I guess they they pulled it all out for now. But I I, I called I think that thing was shot out of a cannon all of a sudden. Nobody had heard about it, and then everyone was talking about it. Yeah, well, you know when when all those sites when Google put the big black bar on their site and mm-hmm. uh, Wikipedia closed down, all I think that just got everybody's attention. I I actually called uh, my representative and and I got a letter from him yesterday that is, you know, it's again it's one of those things that it just. There's there, he he took no stand. You know, right. it's it's a letter and, that and didn't have to. No, no reason to. Right? Let's let's wait and see. He didn't have to, well, he didn't have to throw a vote out. So <laughs> he's just basically he be yeah, just, just on both sides. So so anyway, being the last one, the last hammer to 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 hit with the blunt force ad campaign. One of the difference, you know, one of the big differences that we 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 have in our business is the sheer speed in which we work. Whereas in a traditional ad agency, you might have a month or more to produce a 30 second TV spot. We will produce them in 24 hours. Right. You know, from, you know, from writing the script to hitting send on, you send it to move the file to the individual stations. And we have to do that without it looking like a complete, complete piece of crap. But at the same time, that does mean that your creativity is, in, is inherently going to be somewhat tamped down because you just don't have the time to sit and think about these ads. And polish you know, it up. Yeah. Deeply, yeah, polish it. I mean, I, I think that on, you know, for a, 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 a you know, per, hour, per hour spent, we do better work than the ad agencies in the same period of time. They just have a lot longer to work on it, which means that um, they, um, uh, you know, are, are – uh, you know, are, are much more likely to, to have, you know, very polished stuff. It's also a lot more expensive typically. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, you know, we, we talk about the blunt force advertising because, you know, you're hammering the message because a lot of times the message has a tough time breaking through, you know, the creative can be weak towards the end as you're running on the fly. And plus you are competing with so much other political advertising because it's not just you and your opponent. It's all the other races that are on the ballot with you that are taking up space in the mailbox, taking up time on radio and TV, all of which are, you know, delivering messages about politics. So it becomes very hard to break through that clutter at the end without just sheer weight of points. 
mm-hmm. unless you just somehow come up with that brilliant idea. But, you know, I, I wish I could tell you that every ad I've ever made was a home run. It's not, nor, nor is anybody else's. Sometimes you just have to go with what you have because the, you know, the good ad that runs is better than the great ad that never sees the light of day. How, how, how big of a, of a, of an issue is research? How do you measure the success of these ads if, if you can't do it? I mean, you obviously you can't afford always to just wait till election day and see if the ads were yeah. <laughs> were working. Well, or is I is mean, it a constant polling thing? Well, we, it depends on the level of race. Um, you know, in a in a in a, a high dollar congressional race, uh, you're polling you know once a week mm-hmm. um, and seeing where the numbers are. But you know, polling and, and understanding the polls, particularly within the political context and how it's impacting advertising, is as much art as science because. No ad is running in a vacuum. Your opponent's also got advertising up. Mm-hmm. There's other things, you know, there's, there's a third-party media that's, you know, both in terms of these new issue groups and super PACs, but also just the traditional media that are, you know, sort of bringing the force of message, you know, from their perspectives onto the race. So it's very hard to parse out, typically, whether or not the numbers move because of what you did or because of a larger environmental factor. Maybe there's a wave going on that's moving candidate, you know, candidates of one party, you know, you know, on mass towards, towards an outcome. So it's often very hard to, to, to measure out an ad on the biggest campaigns. You can at least do some, uh, pre-testing of ads. You might be able to dial test or focus group some stuff to at least get some sort of sense as to, you know, does the ad cut, but again, even there, you know, you're asking people to focus on an ad when that's not how they watch television or not how they read their mail. They don't focus yeah. on one. They're fl- you're there, you know, in a basket with a bunch of other things that they are going to sort of sort through and see what interests them. So, you know, and I, I wish I could tell you that, that, that we know for sure when an ad works and when it doesn't. You know, experience combined with the polling gives us a pretty good idea, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's still – all subjective at the end. I mean, I, it's hard to say. There's only one metric I've ever found that really sort of correlates to this ad or this mailer worked. And that is when we do our polling, we, we put in at least one verbatim question where the interviewer you know, records the you know, verbatim what re- the response from the respondent versus you know, ticking off a multiple choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we find is that if in those verbatims we see you know, over a number of the verbatims that people are either using the phraseology that we used or they mention an ad that they saw that we did specifically mention it, it cut. Gotcha. And, and otherwise, as you said, you, you have to rely on your own experience. Uh, Absolutely. Your own intuition about, about what's going to work and how you can differentiate. That, that's a key one too, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. you, you've got to be for what the other guy's not. It's all about contrast. Yeah. You know, no, nobody votes for you for being like the other guy because that's not a decision point. The decision points are on, on areas of difference, areas of contrast. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's one of the many reasons at the end you see campaigns get very negative. You want to show what's different, why he is not the right choice. Sure. And, and there's probably no, no way around that. I mean, everybody complains about it, but, but... Everyone complains about it, but the fact of the matter is... You know, I've done, I've been in, you know, touched probably over a thousand elections mm-hmm. and, you know, every, almost every time the answer is the same, which is you throw up your positive ads to quote unquote, introduce the candidate and all this stuff. And we can, we should get into that because we're doing less of that now. We find it's really doesn't, it's just a waste of money in many cases. Um, 
you know, and the numbers just don't move. But the minute you start going negative, wow, the numbers start moving. Hmm. And I, when I was, te- when I was teaching years ago, you know, the way I used to, to put it, and I, this was more anecdotal than actual research, but it sort of made sense to me. I said, I would ask my students, I said, what's the number one news, what's the number one circulation newspaper in the country at the time? And the answer is the National Enquirer. Why? People like to see, are, are drawn to seeing people who want power, who want fame, want success, get tripped up. There's a real sense of schadenfreude. Sure. In the, uh, you know, in you know, in, 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 the, in the public sort of perceptions of things. That's why, the, why for years after Howard Stern came off the E! Network, their number one show was the E! Hollywood Story, which was about how which Hollywood star was doing crack that week. Yeah, it moves the needle, and there's sort of a public ex, you know, expectation. And in, in, in certain parts of the country, we have found, for example, I mean, we, we've really sort of grown to believe that in certain parts of the country, they don't believe you're a serious candidate until you attack the other guy. Mm-hmm. There are certain places that seem to really almost crave it. Others... Not so much, but at the end of the day, you know, particularly if you're a challenger running against an incumbent, nobody hires challengers. They fire incumbents. You know, 90% of challenger races are really referendum on the job that the incumbent has done or the positions the incumbent has taken. You know, nobody looks at an incumbent and says, oh, I like him, but oh, this guy's be even better, so I'm going to give him the job. No voter thinks that way, even though they'll all tell you that they do. So instead, what you have is, you know, can I, t- you know, is, you know, you get, do I stick with the devil I know, or do I take the leap because he's so bad, and maybe the devil I don't know is a little better? Sure. You know, I, I think that the two lessons so far here for for business advertising uh, have to do with the uh, the the timing, the, the the you know the the deadline kind of a concept in a in a campaign. You work from the election day backwards. So if a sure. business owner is planning uh, an advertising campaign around an event. Always work from the event backwards. Don't don't start Absolutely. too soon. Uh, you know you you you've got to you've got to get people's attention when it's when it's close to that event. So they need to take action then, unless it's something that's going to sell out and they need tickets. But if you're just looking to get people to show up to something, um, you you've got to really just hit it really really hard the closer you get to the event and, and don't water it down, you know, way off into the, into the future. You know, let me just add to that too. Um, when I first met Roy Williams, you know, Roy is a evangelist for 52 week schedules for businesses. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, he will, he'll tell each of his, his, uh, seminars, you know, businesses come up to me all the time that say that, you know, 52 week schedules aren't right for my bit, for my kind of business. And here's why. And I always show them why they're wrong. But he has said to me, at least, that, you know, I was the first person who ever took one of his seminars that legitimately had a short-term, a short-term advertising need. Mm-hmm. That I was the first person who didn't fit that traditional model. And then we talked a couple of years later, um, Roy was working on a project and he had called me about it just to run something by me. What Roy recognized a couple of years later was that really you have sort of two kinds of businesses, one of which is the, the, the traditional businesses that we all think about and retailers, et cetera, but that there is this subset of businesses that really are focused on or, or are better served by advertising that's very direct marketing focused, which is much more much more durational because um, you're about having somebody take an action at a specific time rather than waiting for them to take the action when they're ready. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is where you start getting into direct mail packages and two-minute uh, ads for the rotisserie junior. Those are all about taking action now 
rather than taking action when you are ready. And politics is all about taking action now, not when you feel like it, because Election Day is at a certain point. Well, you know, the other thing is, and and this this may be – this is a little bit of a hybrid idea because there there Mm -hmm. are businesses that, you know, if if you're planning an event, as as I said, you want people to show up that day. But for for the most part, those businesses are still going to be around the next day and the next week. Mm-hmm. And so one of the other things that we always tell them is if if you are advertising for an event, make sure that what you're saying about the event or during the event, if you're going to be doing, you know, remote broadcasts and things like that is 90%, 95% of the people that you're talking to in this campaign aren't going to the event. So okay. make sure that the things you're saying are relevant to the people that aren't going as well. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that it's, that it, there's some, some good branding there. There's some good, uh, just in ingraining your business as the the place that you need them to think of first and feel best about when they do need you if they can't make it to your event. And then the other thing that you mentioned that I think is is important for for businesses to think about and and we've been doing this with some with some pretty good success is that contrasting. And it, and it, from a business standpoint, you don't have to get negative, you don't have to badmouth your competition, but you can certainly contrast we're this as opposed to other companies that do that. You know, if you, if you well, have differences, it, you, you drive that wedge mm-hmm. in between you and your competitors and say, this, this is what a, you get with us, and, and that's what you get with them. We have a concept in political advertising, at least within our firm. I don't know if this is throughout the industry, but this is a term we use internally, where we focus between hard contrast and soft contrast. The key difference between hard contrast and soft contrast is the mention of the opponent. In a soft contrast, we might say, Jane Smith is the only candidate that will do X. Mm-hmm. In other words, we set Jane out alone on the issue, you know, subtly soft saying that the opponent's doing the other thing. The hard contrast is, you know, John Smith won't do what you want. That's why you want to vote for Jane. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, you know, John Smith's an idiot. How do you so, decide? How do you uh, decide which to use? Uh, sometimes it's decided for you by the client because some some clients get a little weak need. Um, sometimes it's a matter of the polling. Uh, one of the keys about contrast that, that uh, you measure, particularly if you're in a campaign that's doing a lot of polling, is you're measuring your, your candidate and your opponent's image all the time. What, how favorable are people's impressions of you? And mm-hmm. what is the ratio of favorable impressions to unfavorable impressions? And you want to be over two to one favorable. Uh, and if you're over two to one favorable, you can often very, uh, contrast very sharply uh, and still maintain that positive image because you that often indicates a, a, a sort of a reservoir or a well of, uh, of goodwill that you have with the electorate that won't go away likely over one spot unless it's you know, completely over the line and egregious. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you have a candidate that needs to contrast but has sort of weaker favorables so that people already have sort of a negative look of them, you don't want to burn that in by making them seem like thugs. So you might go with a softer contrast to make your point, but yet not necessarily – reinforce the negative that, oh, he's already a bad guy, and look, he's attacking that other person. Sure. And, and, you know, from a business standpoint, um, it's seldom a good idea to uh, draw attention to and bash a smaller business than you, somebody that's got less market share. Sure. Because because you're just drawing attention to them. Uh, Yet it's it's sometimes a good strategy to draw attention to somebody that's bigger than you and contrast yourself to them. I mean, the, the, the classic example is Avis. Mm-hmm. versus Hertz. So, I mean, would, 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 is that ever play into, into how you would apply that? No. See, we, we look at things a little differently. 
there's a difference between identification and image that's very important in our business. And I suspect this is very important that carries over. It's one thing to be able to say you heard about somebody. It's another uh, thing to say you have a an impression of what that person is, essentially what their brand is. Okay. Do you like them, dislike them? And, and, and we, we, can, we, we even uh, cut that up a little further in terms of firm versus soft impression. And, and let me walk you through this because it's, it's, it's simple, but it, it just let me explain it. If we're trying to determine what the image of a candidate is or an organization or whatever, now this would work just fine for business. Uh, the first thing you say is we're going to read you a list of, of you know, people or groups or companies, whatever, that you may or may not have heard of or been talked about recently. As you hear each one, please respond as to whether or not you've ever heard of them. Okay. okay so that's your first thing. Any familiarity whatsoever. If they say no, you just move on to the next one on the list or on to the rest of your survey. You say, yes, I have heard of John Smith. Okay. Do you have a positive or negative impression of John Smith? They'll either say, I've got a positive or a negative, or sometimes they'll say, I have no opinion. Mm -hmm. The no opinion is the guy in most cases. I mean, you know, not every person who gets on with a pollster tells them exact truth. And there's some regionalism, regionalism to that too. The person who has no opinion, they've heard the name somewhere. They don't know much about that person. That's a person who essentially knows the name and might be receptive to more information about that person because they've essentially, it's stored in their hard their hard drive. There's just no, there's nothing with it. There's, yeah, there's, there's no, no, you know, nothing else in that file. Mm -hmm. There's just, you know, they, they, there's a file in the hard drive, but there's not, you know, there's no, um, there's no content in the file. Let's say I have a favorable impression of John Smith. Okay. Would you say you're strongly favorable or somewhat favorable? The strongly favorables tend to be the people who love John Smith. They will, there is very little you can tell them about your opponent or even negatively about the guy that they support that will move them off of him. Just forget about it. This, they're, they're voting for, for that guy. I mean, uh, unless you, you know, say, you know, you know, the person was a criminal or, I mean, something really egregious, but you know, just their traditional voting record and things, these people think so highly of them. They will not trust most of what the opponent says about them. Mm -hmm. They immediately will discard it. Um, as you know, they're the enemy, you know, the opponent is their enemy, you know, the, the enemy of my friend is, you know, anyway. Um, but the people who are sought, you know, somewhat, uh, favorable in many cases, we find that they're, when we, when we've dug in on the research is they're not somewhat favorable because they, they know something they like, and this is, you know, particularly important in politics because they know something about the guy they like. If they, they figure, I haven't heard anything bad about the guy, so he must be okay. Because mm. politics is such a nasty business. If he was a bad guy, I'd have heard about it by now. And so you see, it's very common for longtime well-known elected officials who haven't had tough races to see their favorables float up. Um, and if you look at, you know, sort of, you know, you get down into the weeds on it, you realize many, in many cases, they have a very small, strongly, but a big somewhat. Okay. Uh, we had a race here in Virginia back in 1996 where U.S. Senator John Warner was challenged by the now Senator Mark Warner, which just the Warner-Warner thing had all kinds of interesting uh, <laughs> uh, uh, ramifications. But at the beginning of that race, John Warner, the sitting senator, was the most popular elected official in the state according to all public polling. He had like a 75% favorable and approval rating. You know, to the, you know, to the average person, you know, he's a great guy. But over the 18 years since he had first been elected before that race, he had not had a tough race since his very first race. Nobody okay. had heard anything really bad about John Warner for 18 years. So, again, they hear, you know, whatever, to the extent they hear anything about him, it's, you know, positive. 
because it's you know it's stuff you know that he's doing and bringing home. Mm-hmm. They've heard nothing negative about him, but they're also not focused on him because one of the things campaigns do for candidates, tough campaigns uh, for elected officials if they get reelected is it gives them a venue to really drive their brand much harder than they're otherwise able to and drive who they are and define themselves much more than candidates who don't have tough races. Not having done all that spade work, Mark Warner comes in and starts pounding them and that, and his number pops like a balloon. And at the end of the election, his favorable has dropped from 73 or 74 to 52. And, And the point is because these somewhat favorables sort of, Oh wait, there is more to the story. I didn't know. Gotcha. Whereas the strongly favorables didn't care, but the somewhat favorables figured, not knowing that there had been more to the story, just assumed there wasn't because they hadn't heard anything. I want to get back to, to something you, you said earlier about not going after the, sm- the guy with the smaller market share. Mm-hmm. We look at it, 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 it this from a very different pers- perspective, which is what is the opponent's growth potential with the electorate? How much of the electorate, you know, left of their own devices, could they, you know, could they gain? Okay. Because if, if that person's a threat to go over 50, I mean, you know, if we see a path, you know, through the electorate for them to get over 50, we can't allow them to get larger than us to bring them down. We have to put them out of business before they, you know, you know, essentially we have to suffocate the baby in the crib. That makes sense. I mean, the, um, you, you've, you've really got to, to be offensive <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in, in well, every sense of the word. And, <laughs> you know, and the, you know, and people who hear these these sort of think that these rules, you know, incumbents can't go negative first, or it's a sign of weakness. If you've if you've got an opponent who has a way to fifty, and you have the resources to just kneecap them early, uh-huh. you might as well just go ahead and do it. The one thing about advertising early that does stick is if you if you hit somebody hard enough with with a most a powerful enough attack that turns the voters off from them, it's often then very hard for them to regain the credibility with the voters to bring voters back to them. It's a big game of whack a mole. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, so sometimes, you know, sometimes you want to make the decision to attack early, define them early so that anything that they say subsequent to that falls on deaf ears because you've already proven to the electorate, this is not a guy worth even listening to. Is, is the polling itself uh, a campaign tool? And, and not just to, uh, not just to, to test... Uh, people's reactions, but I've felt in uh, a couple of times when I've been uh, willing and patient enough to actually listen to, to a pollster that calls me about candidates, I mm-hmm. find that the questions they're asking are really, if you think about it, designed to move me towards a candidate. Well, what often happens is we will test potential messages and we want to see which one of those messages do shift you. What will typically happen in, in, in a poll is early on in, 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 in a poll, you'll be asked, you know, who, who do you want to vote for without, having, without the pollster having given you any information, just from what you know, you know, cold, um, uh, which way are you leaning? Then, particularly earlier surveys as we're trying to develop the campaign message and plan and theme and strategy, we'll test a series of messages about the candidate, sometimes, or about the candidate or the opponent. Sometimes we want to see what moves people off the opponent. Other times we want to see, is there something that draws somebody to our candidate? Sometimes mm-hmm. we want to see how, how harmful an attack we expect from the opponent will be to our candidate. Okay. And, and then we ask the question again at the end, who will you vote for? And the better polling firms, in my opinion, then do a process what's called regression analysis, where they throw the, 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 all the data from, you know, from each of these individual surveys into their uh, into their statistical software, and they look at 
co- you know, common areas of, of, mo- of, of response for, for those individuals who switch right. their, um, their, their, their choice. Um, we, we know that the, the, the first question, you know, the first time we ask it, it's a fairly, is a reasonable snapshot of what the electorate would do. The second one, of course, is completely biased depending on how many questions we put in and how we word them and whatever. And what you're um, really so trying to the, test is, is uh, what the electorate force. will do after you've hit them with that blunt force message close to the poll. Well, just we want to see which messages d- seem to matter to them. Yeah. You know, which ones sort of resonate. But again, you know, the numbers at the end are artificial and don't necessarily represent what the numbers will be on election day because, you know, we don't know what the opponent will actually do. We don't know whether or not we have to go in a different direction during the course of the campaign. So it's much more of a laboratory experiment, but it's a very helpful one. Um, and typically we do that by saying, if you knew um, that uh, uh, John Smith voted three times to raise your taxes, would you be more or less likely to vote for him? Hmm. And then, you, you know, if they say more likely, would that be much more likely or somewhat more likely? Again, we want to get we're always looking to find out intensity, which is, is critical. And we're also looking to use the polling to, to segment the universe, too, in the set of voters. So, you know, we might want to know uh, what does the portion of the electorate that is pro-life or pro-choice look like or, or uh, pro-gun rights versus pro-gun control look like. Um, and, and uh, you know, we also want to get a sense of from polling. What, what is the actual electorate that's going to turn out look like? We screen for likely voters in many cases going in versus just all registered voters. But we also want to know what that pool really looks like demographically. So we'll, you know, we'll do a series of demographics on uh, it, political ideology, gender, age, um, uh, uh, usually not so much reli- – sometimes religious affiliation, but oftentimes church attendance is very important to us. Mm-hmm. How many times – you go to church uh, more than once a week versus once a week versus once a month versus never, um, and demographics like that. Uh, are you a union member? Is somebody in your household working government? Uh, uh, do you have you know children under eighteen? You know that mm-hmm. we might want to segment out because we have a message that's specific to a subgroup like that. Gotcha. Let's let's shift gears a little bit and talk about direct mail because I know that's a big sure. part of what you do, and about, uh, that, that may be something that, that businesses find a little difficult to do sometimes. They're not sure how to do it, mm-hmm. what to say, uh, when to do it. Uh, what what could a business owner learn from politics in terms of of how to do direct mail right? I mean, most of the direct there's two kinds of direct mail in politics, and then there's two kinds of direct mail in business. And they, they sort of correlate. The first kind is, is direct, direct response advertising. Uh, in, in politics, it's fundraising letters. Okay. You know, we're sending out these packages, and they tend to be very long-form, multi-page letters. You know, they're, they're, they're copy-heavy. Um, and the, on the business side, you'll see Dan Kennedy and some you know, people of that, uh, of that, in that part of the copywriting world um, do a lot of this work. And these are, you know, they're often selling supplements, uh, insurance, uh, things where they want people, they make a very strong, in-depth emotional pitch because mm-hmm. they either close the sale while the letter is still in that person's hand or they don't close the sale at all. The other form of advertising is, you know, how do you continually, you know, stay in touch with, 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 your, with, your, uh, with your customers? We call that, in our side of the world, is voter contact advertising. That is the, the slick, glossy self-mailers typically that come in with the pictures and, and the graphics. And, and I guess for the business, it's, you know, you know, updating people on what's going on at the store or with a product or availability or new 
anyway, yeah. the key for that kind of mail, which I think is, is probably more what you're focused on here, is twofold. One is to understand that people, for the most part, are more resistant to mail now than ever. Predominantly because with the internet and all the other forms of communication, fun mail, i.e. correspondence mail, is no longer really part of the, I mean, nobody really communicates by mail anymore in terms right. of on a personal level. You know, when I was growing up, I had a pen pal. Now, you know, nobody <laughs> has pen pals. They have email pals, uh -huh. you know, so I would go home looking forward to seeing the mail, you know, to see, you know, did, did I get a letter today? Now, when you're looking at the mail, you're, you know, 98% of the time it's ads and bills. Mm -hmm. And you try to make sure that you don't so, miss a bill. Right. But also, I mean, in other words, there's nothing to look forward to in your mailbox anymore. Right. You know, you know, I mean, maybe at Christmas time or, or your birthday, you might get a couple of cards, but I mean, this is one of the reasons the postal service is having so much, so many difficulties. So, you know, you, you have a, a, a much, uh, uh, more competitive landscape now to make your ad, uh, compete. So, you know, the first thing about mail is for, for most businesses, most of them are doing it too infrequently. Um, I, we, I'll put this again back in a political context. Mm -hmm. Very often we'll have a candidate come to us in August and say, we should do a piece of mail now, and then we'll do another piece three weeks later. And my response to them is, that's a great idea. But let me ask you a question. Um, through, what was in your mailbox three weeks ago? <laughs> uh, nobody remembers their junk mail from day to day. The only way you can make that stick is to continue to talk to them with relative frequency frequency. Now you can have less frequency if you're doing, you know, radio or television advertising, you sort of have air cover that this begin that mail can fill in. But for a lot of smaller races, your state legislative races, local races, mail is their primary communication method. So if you're only giving people a piece a week, you're not, there's no way to stay top of mind just with the sheer amount of information that they're receiving in their mailbox every day, much of which they don't even want to read anyway. So it puts a premium on greater repetition. Now, if you're a business and you're in a 52 week schedule, once a week might work, that might be enough frequency over that period, you know, over that, that interval of time. Yeah. And again, but taking, taking campaign, buying cycles yeah. into account too, but, but yeah, it's, mm -hmm. you'll remember that. You know, right. Whereas, you know, with, with a politician where you've got to, you know, go from zero to, you know, to, you know, to, to vote in, in a, you know, a short period of time, we might be dropping a piece of mail a day into their hands. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, again, you know, we're going out of business. We're much more like direct response in that respect, but we also need to create familiarity and, and, and build up, you know, ID and image. The second thing is, you know, businesses, particularly local businesses often undermine their message with really poor production more than, than I, I think even radio and TV in some respects, a really bad looking piece of mail can kill a great message bad layout or you did the layout in Microsoft Word instead of paying an artist a hundred bucks to, to, to lay out your piece so that it's attractive mm -hmm. and it's inviting to a reader, you know, can just kill off a piece of mail. Ugly mail, you know, why, why does somebody want to, why should somebody spend their, their time trying to figure out what, you know, what this is before they can even get into reading it? You know, it doesn't jump out at them. Sure. So, you, you know, you don't, you don't have a good headline. Um, you know, you're, there's, you don't have, you know, you have an image that's bad, the printing is crappy, bad layout. There's all these things that for a couple of dollars more would, would improve the, read, the, the sheer readership of the piece, even before them even knowing what the subject matter is. Um, 
you know, so that so that's something to think about is 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 is, you know, don't scrimp on production values and improved production values in mail, you know, typically aren't that much more than doing crappy mail. Do you have any experience in in using some of these these places that that specialize in it? Uh, you know, there there are companies that just do postcard campaigns and things like that. That yeah, you, you I mean, can get I've kind of a templated stuff. look, or 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 at least you know at least you've got a starting point as opposed to just starting from scratch. And as you said, you pay a designer a little bit of money, but how do you even know that you you got a good designer? And that's you know that's where you know sometimes the experience comes in. I mean, I you know I've been doing this for a long time, and I can look at a piece at a piece of design work and say, you know, this is going to be a problem. That's not a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and. And you don't want to focus group your mail piece, you know, with, with your uncle down the street because that's not the right answer. One of the best things to think about is, is this easy to read? In other words, is this inviting or does this look overwhelming? Very often that's the case. I'll I'll pick up a piece of mail and uh, if it's easy to read, I'll engage with it until I either find that I'm not interested in it mm-hmm. or or I am and I and and. And I'll I'll go do what it is that it that it wants me to do, or or, or you know consider the offer that it's making. Absolutely, and so yeah, you, you get these pieces that are I call them gray pieces. There's there's all, it's all, you know so much text that it just you're just looking like wow that's just a lot, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm not going to give you my time. And, and usually in, in those cases, you 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 had you know a bad headline that was not engaging. The other thing every business owner should know about mail is this: the headline is the key. Mm-hmm. People will read the headline more than anything. Some study I read said it's like 93% will at least look at your headline, you know, as long as you've got a decently laid out piece, but only 7% will read your body copy. So it makes sense then to really spend most of your time, if you're writing your own mail, focusing on the headline. The body copy almost becomes secondary. You, you almost have to make most of your sale in the headline, or if you have longer copy, breaking that up with subheadlines um, instead of just these big bricks of copy that a lot of local guys do. You know, a lot of people say copy is too long. I think copy needs to be long enough to tell whatever story it is you need to tell and overcome the objections you need to overcome. Mm-hmm. But you need to lay it out in a way that doesn't make it look like, you know, the baton death march of reading. Yeah, and it's got, it's got to support that headline. Whatever that promise of the mm-hmm. headline makes, uh, you, you have to deliver the evidence of that. Absolutely. But a lot of it's also just the visual. Um, like I said, if the page looks gray, you know, it's just big blocks of text that's very uninviting for a reader who's already time pressed. So for example, when we're laying out mail, you know, we put a, we, we put an actual line break between every paragraph to create a sense of space and shortness, even if it's not short, mm-hmm. you know, we use, um, you know, how we lay out the type to give it a feeling of openness. Oh, this will be quick to read. We try to keep the paragraphs very short, even if it's not quote unquote grammatically correct. And, you know, nobody, nobody who is professionally writing copies should be worrying about grammar. It's the one place where you can break all the rules in school if, when it's appropriate. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we do things like, oh, those are short paragraphs. We, we make it look easy to read, no matter how long the copy is. We make it look like, oh, I can do this versus, oh, my God, this is, you know, it's a textbook. I, I agree with you 100%. There's so many times with clients where we'll talk about some web copy, for example. I mean, it's 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 a very similar thing on a homepage mm-hmm. where, where you're saying, you know, are, are these the right words? And I'll say, I got to see it. I got to see it laid out in the style and the format that is going to be on the site to actually give you valuable input on that. Because to me, it's it's an aesthetic just as much as it is choosing the right words. Absolutely. I mean, one, you know, I've, I have a number of clients who say, can you send me the copy before you lay it out? And I'm, I'm really resistant to it mm-hmm. because clients think they can see it in their head, but they can't. 
Um, and sometimes copy without the images we're, we're putting with it or the way we're, we're going to use the copy in terms of the layout. I mean, there, there's an emotional impact of the visuals that impact how the copy gets read. Mm-hmm. Oh, very often so, if you're writing yeah. it, you can't see it in your head. If you're putting it in a, in a little call-out box or something on a website or, or even, you know, in a call-out in a, in a written document, until you see it in the call-out box, you, you may not know that it's going to fit or, or look good. It, it may be yeah. too much. And so, so sometimes you just look at it and you go, well, I got to cut, you know, uh, 25% of this out. I'll give you the flip side of this, which is clients who want to put more copy in than they need to. Mm-hmm. You know, some clients want to put, put every message into a piece of mail. Like this is the last time, you know, the recipient <laughs> is ever going to hear from them. Exactly. Uh, you know, yeah. and, you know, we call it kitchen, we call it kitchen sink mail. You know, you try to discourage that. The other thing about mail, one message, one piece. You know, you, you, this is not a you know the place to, to to talk about the full range of your business. This is to give what you want the person when they throw away your piece of mail and they will throw it away to remember what's the one thing you want them to remember. Right. And it's not a specific, and it can't be a specific piece of of data. When the voter goes into the booth, we don't want them to know that uh, John Smith uh, cut taxes ten times for thirty five million dollars. We just want them to know he's the guy who cut taxes. Yeah, he's the guy I'm going to vote for. Yeah, or, or or she's the one that, that that wants to help schools. I mean, sure. you you want them to take away a broad message, or you know, oh he's oh he's that guy who you know who 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 voted to kill puppies. <laughs> yeah, I don't want you know you know, you know we don't it doesn't necessarily matter to them how many puppies he killed and how he did it. Right. <laughs> I mean, you're gonna you're gonna give them that information in the piece, but you don't need them to retain that. And you know, particularly with political candidates, but I suspect it's the same in the business community. There's this impression, if I send somebody a piece of mail, they will read it. No, they're under no obligation to read it. You know, mm-hmm. you can send the mail. Because I'll hear things constantly from, from candidates. We need to put this in. Voters need to know that. Well, they might need to know that, but that doesn't mean they're going to learn that. Yep. They ultimately get the choice as to what information they want to receive. So just because you think they need to know that doesn't mean they think they need to know that or that they care or that they're going to take the time to know that. And, and we're all getting um, jaded and tired of it too. So you've got to, you got to keep all that sure. in mind too, right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, how do we, how do we punch through that whole, uh, just that whole lackadaisical tired of the status quo attitude mm-hmm. that people have, you know, I'm, I, and, yeah. I, and I'm kind of a curmudgeon along those lines. I, I, I get incredibly resistant to it. Half the time, I don't feel like there's there's uh, any difference at all between uh, one side of the aisle or the other. They're they're all kind of interested in their own self interest and the interests of the people who put them there, as opposed to uh, to mine or what, what what maybe people think is the greater good. So punching through <laughs> to people that have that kind of a jaded attitude is has got to be pretty hard. Well, it is, and that's what, it's another reason why negative messaging works because it, now you're not trying to talk. Talk about why I'm so great, which, you know, advertising about yourself, you know, is, it's, you know, of course you're going to think you're great. That's, you know, it's you. Um, but, you know, hearing, oh, wait, he really, you know, I didn't think, I never thought he was out for me. Oh, not, oh now I've got the information that proves it. Good. Yeah. You know, I'm validated. And, and yet, um, it's, are, it's, you know, he, he was a scumbag. And again, as, as jaded as I, I, I feel, I always vote. I always mm-hmm. go because that that's, that's. I feel like that's do. the only thing I can do. It's a difficult job you have, Brett. We're, yeah, we're dealing with an electorate. You know, first of all, depending on the election, you know, most of the people who can vote won't. Other times, they're coming out to vote, but they're not coming out to vote for your, in, even with an interest in your race. You know, they're coming out to vote for the presidential candidate. They don't, you know, they, they haven't focused on the congressional race. Right. 
I mean, you, you know, and then of course there's this, you know, cynicism in government. I mean, right now we're looking at, at probably the most unpopular Congress in congressional history based on the polling data. Um, and I'm not sure the White House is all that much more popular when it's all said and done. You know, there's this, you know, this feeling that, yeah, I can, I, you know, even if I do go vote, what's really going to change in my life? Right. Because nothing seems to happen anyway. So yeah, there's a lot of voter cynicism. Um, but you know, one of the things that's sort of interesting about elections in this country versus some of the other places that, that I've, I've done some work is there's always that sense of hope that this time, maybe it'll be different. <laughs> yeah. This time Lucy will hold the football down for me. So I'm going to go, I'm going to try it one more time. <laughs> you go to some other, you know, some other places, parts of the world that, that either they vote because their neighbors are voting. They don't want to seem, you know, uh, uh, you know, not, not part of the process, but don't really care um, to, you know, they've just given up on voting because the whole system is corrupt anyway. Yeah. Well, th- this has um, been fun. Let right? me I, I, oh, one last thing about mail, if I could. Sure. Um, one thing I've, I've picked up from clients that clients make a big mistake on with mail, and it's got to happen in the in, in, on your side of the world too. Is I can count on one hand out of the multiple thousands of mail pieces I've written and created for for people over the years. On one hand, the number of edits for non-typographical reasons that a headline was ever edited, but I can tell you about hours that our clients have spent, you know, digging into the body copy and tweaking it. The headline mm-hmm. is 98% of the game in mail. What's in the body copy, as long as it's factually accurate and, you know, and there's no, you know, massive typos, that's not where the client needs to spend their time. That headline has to kill, which always makes me laugh when these, I get, you know, five rounds of changes on body copy, and yet the headline, which I thought was mediocre, they just left alone, didn't even, didn't even comment on. You know, everybody wants to get down on the facts because they're interested in what you're writing because it's about them when you really need to be interested in, does this grab my, my, my audience? Do you think that's, uh, that holds true on the web as well to that same extent? Probably. I mean, probably, you know, I mean, I've, I've written some web copy for people over the years. I, I just find that, you know, Rory Williams has a really great line on this, which is, you know, it's really hard to read the label of the ketchup bottle if you're standing inside the bottle. Uh-huh. And so, and, 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 and clients are like that when they're reviewing ad copy, you know, they want to get down in the weeds because they think everybody is, is interested and focused on this as they are because this is their life. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, no, no, no. They're going to focus maybe on the headline. And so, you know, does this, you know, so I'm always amazed at how few comments I ever get back on headlines. But, you know, the seventh paragraph of a 500 piece, 500 word mailer, you know, they're tweaking two words. Mm-hmm. And it's like you're agonizing over the wrong, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're agonizing over the pennies while you're not even paying attention to the dollars. Yeah. I, you know, um, just in, it, in some of the tests we've done for, for some web clients, uh, you use Google website optimizer, which is a free tool and, mm-hmm. and, uh, you always get, I guess, quicker results and more clear results when you're testing one headline versus another than when you're testing something that's in the body. Uh, mm-hmm. It just doesn't. You, you you hardly feel like you're testing anything when you're when you're just tweaking the content, uh, rearranging it, rewriting it, whatever it is. Sometimes it's just hard to hard to tell, hard to see that there's any kind of results uh, even being generated. But when you change the headline, you change the game. Well, sure, because first of all, that head that headline is like the door. You know, that's like the storefront. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to. Just, you know, if you're walking down, you're, you're walking at the mall. You have to decide. Do I, do I care what's inside that store? Yeah. If I don't go in, if, if that person isn't, doesn't care about you know, your exterior facade to walk in, you could have the greatest products on earth inside and nobody will ever buy them. 
No, mm-hmm. you're not. I'm being very simplistic here. Well, the headline is the same way. You may have this brilliant, awesome story to tell your body copy, but if your headline doesn't get them to sit down and listen, you know, it's sort of the equivalent of what's going to grab somebody to stop them from flipping channels. If it doesn't grab them, they will never sit and watch your show or listen to what you have to say. Again, some of the studies that have been done on mail, I think are of some questionable you know, validity, but you know, one number that gets kicked around the business is seven seconds is what you have for about 95% of the people as to whether or not they will go you know, go through a piece or not, you know, they'll take it, they'll flip it over, you know, they'll look at the headline. Second thing they're, they're most likely to read, by the way, uh, photo captions. So if you have a photo, you should caption it because it's, you're, you're likely to get a read, more likely to get a reader on that than in the body copy. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to make a decision as to whether they're going to toss it. That's not a lot of time. And if they do toss it, at least you hope that they retain whatever the, you know, the broad message was from the headline, you know, cut taxes, raise taxes, good guy, bad guy, whatever it is. Um, cause if you got that, you, you, you did 90% of what you wanted to do anyway. Um, and, and that's some, sometimes lost on, on clients, um, who want to, like I said, you know, really agonize over, you know, every, every I and T that and nobody's actually going to spend time on this. And, and the illustrative, you know, the illustrative point to this is fundraise when you're doing fundraising mail, you know, we talk about direct response mail, getting a one or 2% response rate. And yeah, that sounds really low, and it is. But at the same time, there are people who became billionaires at one percent response rates, you know, because, you know, it's in, you know, yeah, you sent out a, a bunch of mail to people who ultimately didn't respond, but the, but the, you know, the, the people who stayed with you, you closed them, you got their cash, mm-hmm. you had a pitch that, that that worked for them, and you know, one or two percent, you know, at least, you know, uh, 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 you know, in that re- in that respect, you know, you know, fueled some some some. Fortune 50 companies. It's okay that they don't want to get past that line. So yeah, photo captions in a piece of in a self mailer, a photo caption is the second most read thing after the headline. If you're doing a letter, a, a traditional letter, um, the first thing that is the first thing that's looked at is who signed it. The second thing that they look at is the PS. Mm-hmm. They'll read the PS before they even read the beginning of the letter. So your PS has to essentially almost becomes like a headline. You, you got you got to make you know you got to get your whole message in the PS and then reestablish it in the opening of the letter when they finally flip through and decide they want to read it. Gotcha. That's why every every letter that goes out needs a PS. You're you're, you're throwing money away if you don't put a PS that's that's absolutely repetitive of everything you've already said. Great advice, Brett. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and uh, and hey, no being, problem being a part of the podcast and and uh, let's let's do it again sometime. 